Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I am joined by Stuart Kells from Melbourne in Australia. Stuart is a bibliophile, a collector, a literary historian and an author who writes books about books. Stuart's latest book is called Shakespeare's Library. He investigates the mystery of what happened to Shakespeare's library. For four centuries, people have searched for it, but there has been no trace of the Bard's manuscripts, books, or letters. Now, we know Shakespeare must have extensively used books when writing. Stuart's book travels from Stratford-upon-Avon to London to Australia and many other places along the way. He also goes into the thorny subject of authorship, who was Shakespeare and who wrote the plays. We encounter early book collectors, booksellers, actors, more playwrights, some entertaining fraudsters and an incredible number of puzzling facts. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. All right. The first question, an obvious one. Why? Why is it important to try and trace and find Shakespeare's library? Good question. Well, well, for all authors, it's interesting to see their source books, uh, their working drafts and manuscripts. It helps us to understand their methods and their influences and their achievement uh, as writers. Um, For some authors, historically, and, and Charles Darwin is an example of this, We can see how they they grow as authors, we can follow their thought processes, and we can even read along with them when they've marked up source texts and things like that. And so, in general, it's useful to see an author's library and working drafts and, and source books. And with Shakespeare, that's even more important, partly because he's so significant as a figure culturally around the world but also because his achievement is often disputed and there's a a body of evidence that would be incredibly helpful that's um, currently not present. Now, if the man who was called William Shakespeare didn't actually write the plays, someone else did, then isn't it logical that there never was a library owned by the, what sounds like a rather humble man from Stratford-upon-Avon, William Shakespeare? Yes, you're exactly right. So the search for the library is very much bound up with that um, so-called authorship question. The size of the library um, grows and shrinks uh, in line with the extent to which Shakespeare's authorship grows and shrinks. And Shakespearean heretics have often used the absence of the library and other items as proof in, in, um, in their terms that, that Shakespeare was just a front for the so-called true author. Now, the true author. You, you, <laughs> you, <laughs> you describe many options. Um, mm. One of the names that just keeps cropping up again and again was Henry Neville. He comes up a lot. So perhaps you can tell us who he was and why he was suspected of writing Shakespeare's plays. Yes, you're right. There are lots of different authorship candidates. Uh, Henry Neville is one of the most popular uh, recent names to be put forward. He was uh, very much uh, a um, popular heretical candidate around the turn of the millennium. He was an aristocrat 
a diplomat, a politician, uh, and uh, in an early sense, an industrialist. He was implicated in the Essex Rebellion. Uh, later, later in his um, his career, he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. He was born in 1562 and died in 1615. So his dates are similar to Shakespeare's, and their, their lives um, played out over over more or less the same time. Uh, although Neville predeceased Shakespeare by a year, the main expression of the Nevillian theory. Uh, is in the book The Truth Will Out by Brenda James and Bill Rubenstein. And that book became a bestseller when it came out. The Nevillians present all sorts of different kinds of evidence. They claim that um, various different turning points in Neville's life line up with changes in Shakespeare's interests and writing. They claim that there are stylistic similarities between Neville's writing and Shakespeare's. And they point to um, documents and contemporary references that they claim uh, connect Neville to Shakespeare. Um, and I go through that evidence um, fairly carefully in the book, and uh, I conclude that their argument is not well-founded. Now, why would anyone, Henry Neville or, or someone else, wish to put someone else's name to a series mm. of works? Yes, there's all sorts of reasons why, um, well, the authorship candidates and, sorry, the, the heretics put all sorts of different reasons forward about why that may have happened, all sorts of political reasons. Um, for example, um, people were worried that they would be offending the monarch and so they, they stayed behind a front man. Or um, there was a sense that writing plays was, was a disreputable activity for, for an aristocrat and therefore... Um, you had to have a front person again. All of those reasons, I think, are, are untenable. And um, there's, there's a very practical rebuttal, which is that if you're writing things that are offensive to the Crown or in other, way, in other ways risky, um, then it's very dangerous to use a front person who's an actual person. William Shakespeare was a real person connected to the theatre world um, and he had his own life and career so it would have been pretty perilous for him to be that uh, kind of front person. Um, but for also a whole, whole bunch of other reasons as well, um, that sort of argument is, is untenable. So if, let's dream, if by some miracle a single book from Shakespeare's library turned up, what would be the impact? What would it be worth? There's priceless things that are still missing that are not in collections at the moment, um, like the manuscript version of Shakespeare's sonnets, which we know circulated among some of his friends uh, before it was published in, in, um, in book form. We know that there um, were lost editions of some of the early plays, including potentially early printed editions of Othello and Love's Labours One that, we haven't, that, that currently are not um, available. There's possible um, volumes that may have been bound um, for Shakespeare, including potentially with his, his coat of arms. There are missing plays and missing manuscripts, such as the, the manuscript for Cardinio. There are ancestor texts, uh, so uh, pre-versions of the key, the key plays, 
such as the ancestor text of Hamlet, known as Ur Hamlet. There are Shakespeare's own copies of key source texts by Ovid and Chaucer and others. And there are books that he may have had from early printers, such as Caxton and Winken de Word. There are manuscripts of the major plays, such as Hamlet and King Lear. And there are things even like diaries and journals uh, that may or may not exist. So if you were to find a, a manuscript of Hamlet or a, a manuscript version of the sonnets, you know, what would people pay for that? That would be probably the most important manuscript, most important literary manuscript in the world. And therefore, it wouldn't be hard to think of that uh, as attracting you know, $10 million, $100 million, it would be the Mona Lisa of um, of manuscripts. So, um, you know, name, name, your, name your figure. Right. Now, as I was reading the book, I felt that you had a particular joy in writing around some of the, the fraudsters, some of the criminal activity associated with what happened after Shakespeare and in relation to his books and his library. Perhaps you can give us some, mm. some, some, some examples. Yes, well, the book serves in some ways as a catalogue of fraud and, and a catalogue of the forgers and hoaxers that have, that have um, occupied this, this sphere for the last 400 years. Even in Shakespeare's lifetime, there were Shakespearean frauds. So there were books published under his name that he didn't entirely write, such as The Passionate Pilgrim. And then after his death, there are all sorts of different kinds of frauds. One of the most spectacular was the case of William Henry Ireland, who produced uh, Shakespearean Association copies, letters, uh, other kinds of documents, and even went to the trouble of producing a catalogue of Shakespeare's library, which is a fascinating uh, curiosity. So the book goes through all sorts of different generations of, of frauds and forgers. And one of the interesting things is how the same kinds of fraud and the same personalities of the fraudsters um, occurs over time almost as though the hoaxes themselves are reincarnated. And one of the things that I show is that some aspects of the way people have approached the authorship question is in that tradition of fraud and, and forgery. And one other thing that you clearly explain in the book is, is how writers worked in those days, that there were no copyright laws and mm. for a writer to take someone else's book or narrative and then rework it in a slightly different way was pretty much accepted and really no big deal. Yes, there was a real tradition going back to the Middle Ages of people incrementally changing and improving um, standard texts. There, was, there were a body of stories and people would do their own treatment of that or their own version of that. And most of the major Shakespeare plays used plots uh, and other elements that already existed. So there was a predecessor text, as I mentioned, for Hamlet. There was an earlier version of King Lear uh, and, and so on for many of the major plays and, and even the longer poems, uh, Romeo and Juliet. And there were ver various different earlier versions, including novels of that story. And so that, that was that tradition. But at the same time, there were people who were grumbling about the extent to which Shakespeare used material from other people. Now, also, you highlight people um, rather similar to yourself, but the early book collectors 
who are also looking for Shakespeare's books and Shakespeare's library. Um, perhaps you can describe how some of them operated in the early days, uh, perhaps help define how, how we collect today as well. Yes, there's all sorts of practices, particularly in the 18th and 19th century, that really start to create the idea of what is a rare book and what is a desirable book and how how uh, bibliophilia and bibliomania plays out. Because these are relatively modern constructs and they could have been quite different. Um, there are all sorts of practices that the, the early book collectors engaged in that we would be quite shocked by. So, for example, they would uh, improve texts by adding extra leaves or, 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 or adding other content to volumes. They would have their books washed, um, and that creates a problem for people like me who are trying to trace provenance and ownership because when you rebind a book and when you wash the leaves, it obviously takes away traces of earlier ownership and, and the book's history. But one of my favourite early bibliophiles is, is the um, bibliographer and self-described bibliomaniac Thomas Frognall Dibden, he popularised what has now become a very modern idea of what makes a book desirable. So in his framework, uh, vellum is better than Morocco, Morocco is better than calf, books with wide margins are be, to be preferred because they're more luxurious, rarity is very important. So he loved editions that were printed in only 100 copies or better still, only 50 copies or 30 copies. And above all, he prized the idea of the first edition. Earlier collectors weren't so much interested in, in firstness, and an example of that is the Bodleian First Folio. The Bodleian Library acquired the Shakespeare First Folio, um, which was published in 1623, and then when the third folio came available in the 1660s, they disposed of their 1623 edition because it had been superseded. Now, that was um, a source of some embarrassment for the library, you know, three or four hundred years later, and so they launched a public campaign to buy back that exact copy, uh, and they were successful in doing that. So they've, they've um, remedied the, um, the, the disposal by reacquiring that copy. But the idea that, you know, that the best edition is the first edition is, is a, a relatively modern idea. Right. Um, so the first folios, they're the most treasured Shakespeare book, Shakespeare's books. Um, but you were explaining how those first folios are actually full of typo errors um, and mm. the versions of the Shakespeare's play aren't necessarily the best in terms of full narrative or there's little bits missing here and there. Yes. Yes, it's been fun to burst the first folio bubble a little bit. It is definitely the edition that's most talked about and most prized. Actually, the most expensive and treasured Shakespeare volume is the false folio, which is actually a large quarto, but it's a hundred times rarer and even more intriguing than the first folio. But the first folio gets all of the attention and yeah, you're right, it is full of uh, errors in typesetting and pagination. Um, one of the plays is left off the contents page. Some other plays are left out altogether. Uh, so Pericles and Love's Labours 1, for example. And there are other important exclusions in the first folio, uh, including Shakespeare's poetry. There are differences between the, the various first folio copies because corrections were made in the process of actually printing the, 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 the actual copies um, and among other things those differences help disprove the idea 
which is popular among Shakespeare heretics, that there are hidden hidden codes and hidden messages within the play texts. So there is a bit of a almost like a first folio fetish, and um, Henry Clay Folger was was the um, pinnacle of that. I mean, he he bought you know dozens and dozens of copies of the first folio, and they're now in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. Um, but uh, as a text. Um, there, there are some flaws in the first folio and it's very important to remember that it was published seven years after Shakespeare's death so people call it the authoritative and authorised edition um, which is which is simply not true Okay, let's come back to the, uh, the authorship because it is intriguing now in the book mm. you also describe how there are various groups of uh, what, what seem to be academics who uh, support a certain theory as to who Shakespeare was or who who wrote the books and it was quite entertaining how you described their uh, their groups and how they operate perhaps you could tell us a little bit about one or two of those groups and who they believe in sure not many mainstream uh, authors in this area would would even admit to questioning Shakespearean authorship uh, it's almost poison if you're a Shakespeare academic to even uh, think or talk about uh, questioning Shakespearean authorship but there are university departments and centres that are dedicated to that question Um, and it's a very lively debate there's lots of different uh, potential candidates and they point to all sorts of different kinds of of evidence Um, and and some of them have approached the question quite seriously with with, um, reasonable uh, methods and some rigour in their methods so some of the people that have been put forward uh, for a long time, the Earl of Oxford that was very popular. Sir Francis Bacon had a lot of adherents, particularly through the 20th century. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other fringe uh, candidates, Sir Walter Raleigh, Queen Elizabeth I. And part of the problem with Shakespeare heresy is that there are so many different candidates. My general view is that the scholars are right to ask the question about authorship, but that they've generally gone down the wrong rabbit hole most of the authorship theories imagine a secret author writing behind the scenes, uh, usually a, a secret aristocratic author. But as we touched on before, for many reasons, that picture is not uh, really tenable. We know where Shakespeare found most of his source texts. As, as we mentioned before, uh, there was that tradition of uh, incrementally changing texts. He also just lifted whole slabs from histories and novels and other sources and we know where those sources came from so it's not true it's demonstrably not true that there was a secret enterprise of a secret author writing these works from scratch that's just simply not true and um, so it was an incremental uh, exercise and it was done by someone engaged with the theatre world so there are a lot of contemporary references there are gossipy references to other plays and other playwrights we know that Shakespeare was a figure in the theatre world And we also know that contemporaries criticised him for how he used the writings of others. So the most famous contemporary reference to uh, Shakespeare is the shake scene attack, uh, which refers to him as someone essentially as um, stealing and plagiarising the works of other playwrights. So um, my view in in summary is that the authorship question, the authorship um, uh, thinkers and writers a right to question Shakespearean authorship, partly because it is full of all the sort of hoaxes and, and, and um, uncertainties that we've touched on, but the way they've approached it generally is wrong, 
and they've gone down the wrong rabbit hole. There are more promising rabbit holes. We touched on this as well. And one is the fact that the first folio was published well after his death and uh, more than two decades after the height of his career. And so some of the inclusions in the first folio are quite, um, quite doubtful. So I've come at the authorship question in quite a different way to the way that most people have looked at it in the past, and I've engaged with it in a, in a non-partisan way. So I've taken seriously the arguments and then tested them and extrapolated what the implications might be of those arguments, shown that a lot of the, the authorship um, arguments are uh, ill-founded, but still... Um, validated the idea that there are uh, issues around Shakespeare's achievement and Shakespearean authorship. And most authorship books that try and present an orthodox position, which is that Shakespeare was who, who we think he was and, and he was the you know, playwright and all those sorts of things, most authorship, sorry, most orthodox attempts to rebut authorship questions um, approach it in a head-on, uh, very didactic, very linear way whereas I've approached it in, in a more um, uh, open-minded way, in a less, a less sort of polemical way, to explore the kinds of theories that are put forward and to really get inside that thinking and to show that a lot of it's ill-founded, but also to, to highlight that there are uh, rough edges and fuzzy edges to, to Shakespeare's body of work. So time rolls on. Um, do you think that uh, even a single book from Shakespeare's library will ever be found? Yes, I do. I, I, I think the, the, the reason we haven't found anything so far uh, is because we've, a lot of people have been looking through the, the wrong eyes. Um, they're, they're looking for something that's a very literary library, something that we've projected our own ideas of what a literary Shakespeare would be. Uh, I think partly the reason why it hasn't been found is because a lot of the early searches didn't actually take place. Um, several of the so-called searches for Shakespeare's library in the um, 17th and 18th centuries were actually fraudulent. So it's entirely plausible. And, and the things that we're looking for are quite small. They're, they're little pamphlets, little quarto editions, manuscripts. A lot of these things sit in chests. They're bound up in composite volumes. Um, they, they're um, yeah, wrapped up inside other, other sorts of documents. So it's entirely plausible. And yeah, people have found uh, rare quarto editions over the last you know, century or so that we had previously thought were lost. So I think it's entirely plausible that there are Shakespearean documents out there sitting on shelves waiting to be discovered. And there's been this incredible Shakespeare um, diaspora. These, these books have spread all around the world. Obviously, Americans and other bibliophiles gobbled up anything that had anything to do with Shakespeare over a long period. Uh, but there are important Shakespeare collections in Japan, uh, in Australia and other places. So it could be anywhere in the world. Now, what about you personally? What's, what's the most, uh, for you, the most exciting Shakespearean object or book that you've actually handled? Well, I've, I've had the pleasure of visiting uh, most of the major libraries uh, around the world that have important Shakespeare holdings, including the Folger, the British Library, the Bodleian, um, Maasai University in Tokyo. And some of the highlights um, are some of the volumes that I've touched on, such as the Bodleian First Folio, um, rare copies of Shakespeare's longer poems, um, rare bindings. There's a very intriguing uh, binding in the Folger 
um, which shows a, a scene from Midsummer Night's Dream in gold on the on the upper upper board, which is intriguing. And in my uh, one of my local libraries in the State Library of New South Wales, which is home to the only first folio in Australia, I was able to look at their first folio against the Ben Johnson first folio and to trace connections between those two volumes, which were published seven years apart, but have all sorts of interesting uh, connections uh, editorially and typographically, among others. So there's there's some of the highlights. But also, I I love those um, 19th century bibliophile editions. And I have a collection of uh, books by the, um, the English bookseller, John Fry, who was one of uh, a network of bibliophiles in the early part of the 19th century who were recovering Elizabethan texts and uh, preserving the raw, bawdy versions of Shakespeare. Um, so I, I love those sorts of editions as well. And they were printed for, for sort of private circulation among networks of bibliophiles. And he was a contemporary of, of um, Tom Dibden. So that whole sphere, books from that period as well, I find fascinating. All right. Uh, one last question uh, for you, Stuart, um, and we ask it to everybody, but what book or books are you currently reading? Well, what about um, the Trent Dalton um, one? Where I've got that here on my table somewhere. That's The uh, the Boy Swallows the Universe. Have you seen that? No, no. Tell us about it. Okay. It's an Australian author. Uh, he's an Australian author from Brisbane, or from Queensland at least. Um, and he's written this wonderful book. Uh, it's a work of fiction called A Boy Swallows Universe, um, and it's uh, a kind of uh, very, very grungy take on life in Queensland, and um, I don't want to give away too much about it, but it's beautifully written and uh, incredibly clever. Um, but, yeah, if you saw what, what I can see in front of me, I'm, I'm sitting at a very long table. It's about maybe, I don't know, four metres long, and it has three big piles of books on it um, all of them sort of half read and half opened yeah, that's very common where people have a pile of books on the go <laughs> uh, uh, yeah I, I definitely I have multiple piles of books on the go yeah like you I, I also read for work and for pleasure so sometimes I switch mm. between the two so that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to Stuart Kells, author of Shakespeare's Library for joining us today. Thanks Stuart, it's lovely to hear from you it was an absolute pleasure lovely and thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you again soon